This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October the 25th, 2022. The future, so to speak, is getting nearer, or a certain kind of future anyway, uh, the Miami Book Fair, we've been running a number of interviews with uh, some of the, the very distinguished, exciting writers who are going to be appearing in Miami between November 13th and 20th. That future is certainly getting nearer, becoming more real. Um, for people who are not able to get to Miami for the event, you'll be able to watch a lot of the stuff online. But of course, nothing beats the physical experience of actually being there and being in the same room. And you can, I think, online at least get tickets for Miami right now. We've been running a number of conversations with Miami authors. Stacey Schiff, we did last week or a couple of weeks ago. She has a new book out on Samuel Adams, the revolutionary, but he was very much an analog revolutionary, a revolutionary, at least in pre-digital times. We had a really fun conversation with Jerry Stahl, the, uh, I don't know what we would call Jerry. He's certainly a, an outrageous character who did a bus trip of Auschwitz um, to remind himself of his Jewish identity. The book is called 999. Very physical book trip, an analog trip. He got on a bus. He didn't do the trip online, uh, although he's an expert in other kinds of tripping. Uh, Emily Tamkin was on the show yesterday on bad Jews, on the politics of American Jewish identity. Fascinating conversation. Emily's going to be in Miami, too, uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm sure lots of Jews will show up for Emily's talk on bad Jews. Um, and another of my guests, in fact, my guests today, David Sachs, is going to be there. He has a new book out, out on November the 15th. It's called The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. He's actually appearing in physical terms, in analog terms, uh, in Miami on the 20th of November. And he's joining us in digital form today uh, from his home in Toronto. David, welcome and congratulations on the new book. The future is analog. I'm curious as the title. I would have assumed if you're writing about the future that it should say the future will be analog. Or are you suggesting that the future already exists, so it's already analog? <laughs> um, I'm speaking to you from the future of when you asked that question, which is in advance of it. Uh, the future is analog. Uh, you know, one, it's a catchy title. Uh, but I think... It, it, it's a challenge to the uh, oft-repeated mantra and assumption that the future is digital, that this, it's an inevitability that everything in our life that we hold dear, whether it's work, school, aspects of our community, the way we shop, the way we pray, the way we go to a book event or hang out with friends or communicate with family is going to be digital in some form or another, whether, you know, it's by the virtue of Zuckerberg or Musk or Bezos or whoever is inventing that technology. And um, 
the book and the title challenges that notion. And I think it, it it's, it's a book that really focuses on the way we had to confront this two and a half years ago when we were thrust into the pandemic and thrust inside and, and forced to live the entirety of our lives through a screen um, and confront the future that we were promised, which was going to be a digital future, a virtual future, a future where digital software, hardware would sort of deliver everything. And that was going to be the improvements and, and, and the sort of destiny that we we're focused on. Um, and as we actually had to live with this for months and even years on end, what did it teach us about that future? So it's a declarative statement. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a middle finger to the virtual avatar face of Mark Zuckerberg. Um, you, you, that, uh, but David, what I don't get is it's a rather old-fashioned message. You've already written a book, The Revenge of Analog, from 2016. You mentioned Zuckerberg. Over the last six years, he's made a bit of a fool of himself with his bet on the metaverse. Jeff Bezos doesn't run Amazon anymore. Elon Musk has championed uh, an analog car, the, 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 the Tesla. So what's different about this new book from your, your old book, The Revenge of Analog? It's a really good question. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, that's the danger of naming something with a similar title to the previous one. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about where this book came from, and, and I hope that'll give you a bit of an answer. So, you know, this, this book kind of came out of this period during the very beginning of the pandemic when I was actually promoting uh, my previous book. It was called The Soul of an Entrepreneur. It was a book about, you know, the, the modern cult of entrepreneurship and what it really means to be to work for yourself. And I was getting just as many requests for interviews from media all over the world about the question of the future of analog. Uh, you know, we were locked inside our homes. Everybody was shopping online and doing all these things online. And people were saying, we want to talk to you about the future of analog. And, um, and they were asking uh, initially about a lot of the things that I had written about in the Revenge of Analog. The Revenge of Analog was a chronicle of uh, a trend that I had seen over the previous decade, which was the reemergence of non-digital technologies, of goods and services, things like vinyl records, bookstores, you know, physical independent bookstores, um, uh, paper notebooks and other sort of paper products. Uh, these, you know, film, uh, you know, instant film and so on, uh, uh, Polaroids and Fujifilm and other film cameras, these things that have been dismissed as dead and done, and then all of a sudden we're growing in. And the book was an explanation of why that was happening, what that meant. And so as I was doing these interviews with, you know, newspapers and radio stations, really from all over the world, as I was locked in the, you know, my mother-in-law's country house in a closet that I had turned into a recording studio with a bunch of blankets. Um, they were saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what's the future? Oh, we're not really so concerned about what the future of bookstores are or vinyl records, but like, what is the future of in-person school? You know, what is the, what does this say about the future of grocery stores? Cause, cause we're told and everyone's hearing on the news and everyone's saying on LinkedIn and these other places in podcasts, these things are done. The new normal is everything's going to be online. This is the way it is. You know, take your bicycle, throw it away because the only thing that matters is a Peloton. And I was just wondering, like, what is, is this the future? Like, is this present that we're living in? Is this what it is? Or is there something else? And so as that initial period of a couple of months stretched into a year or more, I, I kept confronting this question. And the book is very, was very much looking at 
that experience of not just a narrow slice of kind of the areas where analog was resurgent records, books, film, and so on, you know, physical goods, consumer goods stores, but the much broader world that we had to confront where we were told that now digital was what we had and what that actually looked like when we put that into reality. Uh, and the thing that was interesting about it and, and that made it such an urgent thing for me to write was that everybody was being forced to confront this. I mean, everyone who had a child that went to school anywhere in the world, except for like some parts of New Zealand for a few months, um, had to send their kids to school on an iPad or a computer and experienced what that was like. Pretty but much did anyone really think that this, I mean, everyone knew it was a COVID emergency. Yes. No one, no one was arguing that everyone was going to spend the rest of their school life uh, online, were they? I don't think anyone was arguing that, you know, in a broad sense, but I think there were many, many people who were saying that the future of education was going to be increasingly online, increasingly virtual. Here in Ontario, for instance, and, in, in, you know, the province in Canada where Toronto is, you know, the government just prior to the pandemic was pushing the idea that parts of um, high school would be mandatory e-learning and you would, kids would learn from home. Uh, there were parts in the United States, uh, Michigan, I think, and Alabama, that were already rolling out virtual kindergartens. And this is in 2019 and 2018 saying, look, we could take tremendous advantage of the cost savings and the power of, of digital to bring remote learning to all these people. This is the future. And this was sort of the narrative that was being sold. The future of shopping, in any sort of store was going to be online. This was the future and this is what everybody had to invest in. So I don't think anyone was saying the future is being locked into your house and doing all these things. That was the extreme version of it. But this was the prevailing narrative of what the future was going to be for, you know, the better part of the past 20 years. Right. So, and, and, I, and I think you're right here. COVID proved an opportunity to see what that digital future would look like. And as you suggest, it, it wasn't um, wasn't always a particularly pretty picture. We we did a, a show with the uh, the journalist Anya Kamenetz on what she calls the stolen year, kids COVID and the catastrophic cost of the pandemic. It seems as though, as you suggest, education and schooling was on the front line. What what did the COVID experience reveal about the limitations of digital schooling? It. It showed that school is vastly more than the facts and figures and sort of raw data that we had assumed it was, right? We think of school and we instantly, especially in the United States and North America, go to scores and testing, right? A quantifiable metric of math and... Um, English and history and other sort of measures and how that information is taught and retained. But when all we had was that information and the way to transmit it directly through technology, we saw very quickly that even for the students who were good at getting that information and understanding it and receiving it through a screen, the experience was degrading and it was provided a fraction of what education really is. And it revealed the much bigger picture of what education um, actually is and, and, and how the physical analog 
setting of a school, whether it's a kindergarten or a university, um, does far more than just transmit the specific facts about a course or a class or a degree, right? And absent all those relationships, the relationship between the teacher or the professor and the student, the relationship between the student and their classmates, the relationship between groups of students and each other, the relationship between the individual and the environment, the desk, the classroom, the campus. Um, absent that, all you had were the facts and all you had is the information. And if education was just about transmitting information, then we wouldn't have needed schools since people invented books and encyclopedias. People could just go home, learn, and that would be it. But as any of us reflects upon our own educational experiences, you know that the information you learned plays a tremendous role. It's the reason you're there. But the learning that happens, the intellectual growth, the emotional and social development that takes someone from a, a four-year-old, three-year-old child and transforms them through the process of schooling into the citizen uh, of a democratic society, someone who has uh, plays an active role and engagement in it, all that learning, all that education is far more than the facts and figures that they learn in the school. It's the entirety of that experience as a human being in a social physical realm while you're learning those things. And I don't think we truly appreciated that until it was pulled away from us. And the entire world went through an experiment where they're like, Oh, I see. Okay. This is, this is right. far more than just the things that we're learning. So um, that's yeah that's one aspect of it i mean the other aspect is you know how horrendous that is when you have young children and you are suddenly responsible for providing that thing within the confines of your own home right so so covid clearly revealed the limitations of online education um and it also revealed a sort of parallel series of pandemics not just a medical pandemic but a medic a, a pandemic of anxiety and violence what do you think this digital in our covid years maybe two years of covid it's a lot of years there, there, <laughs> there, to be, um, there seemed to be a, a radical shift in uh, mental illness and perhaps also violence how, how are they connected with the need for the future to be analog what does the digital do to bring out both our anxiety and our violence well, listen, I think the the issues of anxiety, mental health, violence are nothing new. Um, and there's certainly nothing that is exclusive to people who use digital technology, or use digital technology more than others. But it is becoming very well established through medical research, psychological research, um, that the more time people spend on screens, uh, the more time people spend in the bubble of various social media networks, um, the worse it is for their physical health and their mental health. And um, and we saw that with, again, the incitement of violence in many places around the world during the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, um, whether we're talking about, you know, the events in the United States leading up to the insurrection at the Capitol, or you're talking about the genocide against the Rohingya in in um, in Myanmar. Uh, the the axiom that the writer Jared Lanier, who was a sort of pioneer of virtual reality and then a big critic of Silicon Valley, said in his book Ten Reasons to Delete Your Social Media Accounts Right Now is social media turns people into assholes. 
not all people, not all the time, but most people a lot of the time. And I think people saw and felt that when they were deprived for very good reasons, you know, for the health and safety of, of the greater number, but over the period of time, when they were deprived of face-to-face -face contact with other human beings, when they only interaction they were able to have with people was through chat and text and social media, it changed them. Um, it, we, we, we grew anxious and our anxiety deepened and it wasn't simply because of this pandemic crisis that we were going through and the fear of this disease. The cumulative time that we were spending on screens more and more and more, you know, doing this for hours a day, whether it was for school, whether it was for work, whether it was for socializing, um, that had an effect on people. And that effect is being chronicled now and the studies, you know, continue to come out on it. But, you know, you look at the rates of burnout in people in, in, in various jobs and people are wondering, well, is it something to do with millennials? Is it something to do with the stress of the situation? I mean, my neighbor, Lauren, put it best to me. She works as an, worked as an investment advisor for a large pension fund. Her previous iteration of the job was flying all over the world, London on Monday and Tokyo on Wednesday and Santiago on Friday, back to Toronto to change clothes and off to San Francisco, meetings, meetings, meetings. It was tiring. And when she first got to work from home in her you know, yoga pants. It was wonderful. But after a week of back to back to back to back to back Zoom meetings from 8.30 in the morning till 6.30 at night with a 10 minute break for lunch, she realized that she was trapped in what essentially is a version of solitary confinement, right? I mean, she was in essentially the version of this room because her, her office was on the other side of this wall for months at a time with very little break. That will inevitably have an effect on a human being and it will not be a positive effect. I guarantee you of that. I mean, I take um, your point on the on, on, on some aspects of the politics, but during COVID, we also had Black Lives Matter. Uh, Me Too existed in, 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 uh, in, in the age of COVID. So it, it also, uh, digital can bring out the political in us, the, the collaborative, the communal, the, the citizen in us. I mean, you could argue that we never would have had Black Lives Matter uh, without the internet. How would you respond to that? I think um, I think you're right, and I think it is it is far more nuanced than the simple binary. Uh, I I think there is again the assumption that is this a good thing or a bad thing? It is it is a technology and it has an effect, but that effect needs to be tempered and measured. And, um, you know, there was a there was a period of time after the election of Barack Obama, when many people in the United States and around the world were sort of pointing to social media and saying, this is it. This is the new frontier. This is how politics will be done. And this is going to unleash a growth of citizens having direct democracy, having their voices heard. Um, people are going to be able to speak and, and circumvent power. And that's going to be wonderful. And we've saw some of that at the beginning of the Arab Spring um, at various protests. You're seeing it now in Iran. You're seeing it with movements like Me Too or Black Lives Matter. But you've also seen it with the radicalization of people through uh, online propaganda, through misinformation, whether it was Trump or Bolsonaro or through the Brexit campaign or, you know, far worse, um, far worse uh, aspects of this in other countries where it's led to, you know, violence, interethnic hatred, uh, genocides even. And so... 
you know, the, the sort of kumbaya fantasy that Silicon Valley pitched back in 2009 uh, and 2010 has, has really crashed on the rocks of reality. I mean, you know, Facebook announced its conversion to meta and the metaverse right at the same time as, as its executives were being dragged in front of the United States Congress and being asked how they were radicalizing people all over the world and how their algorithm was sort of tilting toward that because it rewarded the engagement, the very asshole um, itis that, that Jared Lanyard talked about. Um, and, and so, yeah, of course it's, it's, it's the, it's the means by which people can get a message out to many people, but that has tremendous consequences. And it's what it's not very good with is building empathy. What it's not very good with is repairing um, the social fabric that's been torn by those same technologies. Right. That it's is something that happens of, uh, better. On empathy yeah. and um, why AI can't create empathy, why it's uh, uh, what Toby uh, what uh, Toby Walsh, uh, an AI authority, suggests. It's our superpower, uh, empathy. So it's, it's something that uh, a number of people have observed. I'm curious whether the, the future might be different for different people. Um, we did a show with Stephen Thrasher who talked about the viral underclass and how poor people were dramatically worse, more, more, more worse affected by, by the pandemic than wealthy people. Is it possible, um, is it possible, David, that, uh, is it possible that the future is analog for wealthy people and the future is digital for poor people? Um, and that, you know, wealthy people are going to be able to afford to shop in bookstores and buy vinyl records uh, and travel, uh, but poor people won't. Is there a class difference in terms of these futures? In other words, is, are there more than one future in the digital world? There's always more than one future in any world. Um, I think what you're talking about is the great danger, right? The danger is that those who can afford to go to Harvard and Cambridge and well-funded private schools or well-funded public schools in districts of the U.S. will get access to teachers and you get access to classroom time and gym classes and resources. And those in under-resourced areas and in inner cities and in poor states and counties and poorer countries, they'll have to contend with the lectures online and the iPads. And that's because it'll just be a cost savings and it'll be good enough for them. Um, that would be a horrible future and one I hope that we have to protect against because again, when you're when you when you frame it in that way, that analog only becomes a luxury for those who can afford it, you're talking about, you know, a, an essential differentiation of those who are able to live the full human experience to the fullest of their physical, potential to the potential of of how our bodies and our world is designed and those who are you know forced to um contend with the scraps of that the simulations of it um you can't go to a national park you know you can't go hiking i'm sorry we don't have enough resources for that but here strap on these goggles and you know um here's here's a video of a hike so you can and that's what the metaverse will increasingly yeah. become a place for poor people to experience nature when they don't have the means or the resources or the time to actually go into the world. That's, that's the danger. I mean, I remember years ago 
talking with someone uh, in Los Angeles, a friend of mine who, whose partner was working for a company that was in VR. And she was saying, well, wouldn't it be great, you know, because they can record the best lectures from Harvard and children in Africa. And it's always Africa. It's never Ethiopia. It's never Kenya. It's just Africa. It's a place. It's just a generic place. Um, uh, you know, they'll be able to watch those lectures from Harvard. Like that's it, right? It's that's, that's the, that's what we're already sort of doing with television. And that's what we're already doing with media. And I think, again, that's something we have to fight back against. And that that's down to, you know, political- is that for, for poor people or for wealthy people to, to fight back against? Um... Well, I think, I think everyone, right. I think it's, 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 it's raising your voice and, and making sure those resources are, are valued. And it's a less sexy thing, right? People are saying, well, no, you know, what, what this public school in a poor area needs is more STEM. Of course, yes, science, technology, you know, computer classes, those are important things. But we have to make sure that their basketball court actually has basketball hoops and nets that those kids can play in. And the community center has a library and the library is stocked with various things from computers to books that people can actually go in and build those communities because those children need community more than the children whose parents can drive them to soccer practice or to private tutors. Or I mean, it's a, it's a very, I wouldn't say Canadian thing to say, but you can say <laughs> that in Canada without people Socialist laughing. pig. <laughs> right. You can say that in Canada without people laughing at you. In, in America, it's a hard thing to say. Well, you mentioned sexy. We can't have a conversation about digital without talking about sex. We did a, um, a show with, uh, Sorry, with uh, Laura Kipnis. Um, whoops, I'm trying to get the uh, Laura Kipnis on uh, love in the time of contagion. Uh, what did we learn from COVID about dating and sex and romance and love? And, and why should that convince us that the future is analog in terms of our love lives as, as human beings, David? As someone who's married and spent his pandemic with his wife and two young children, certainly I'm an expert on all the sex uh, and dating trends that went on during that time. Um, I, <laughs> I will say this, right. uh, you know, uh, I'm going to, you know, my brother is single and was single during much of that time. Um, and I think if anyone had it worse than people with young children during the, the height of the pandemic, it was single people who were able to go on all the apps and swipe away all they wanted, but were realized just how awful it was to be tremendously lonely and alone for such a period of time. And when I would talk to him, you know, he said all he wanted was just someone to go on a walk with or to go be set up on a date with someone and not have to go through the rigmarole of this sort of fire hose of potential connections through one of the apps. Um, uh, and I think, you know, it's very hard to sort of extrapolate trends from that one extreme period of time out into this notion of the future. But when it comes to these sort of trends of dating or trends of sex that how this has sort of permanently changed things, I mean, there's always technology is always being, you know, the blame's being shifted toward it and have there been long term changes in relationships and romance and, 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 you know, sexual roles and stuff. Yes, of course. But, you know, people are still meeting, people are still dating. And I think when you talk to anyone who was single or dating or, or, you know, trying to find romance during those years, um, uh, it was like searching for a life draft because that, that sense of loneliness was so compounded. Um, and it, it showed that just 
basic human need for that type of companionship that no technology was able to. I, I, I take your point, although could you imagine COVID in a, in a pre-internet age? Imagine how loneliness would have been compounded. I accept the fact that, of course, the internet and this sort of communication doesn't replace and doesn't even compete with the physical experience of you and I being in a room together. Mm -hmm. But it certainly beats not talking to anyone. It certainly beats talking on the phone, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know. During the 19, you know, 19 pandemic, were people like talking to each other across the street or sending telegrams? Um, uh, I, we don't have a comparable for it. Uh, mm. Perhaps one of the reasons why we were able to shut ourselves in so much is because we had technology and it, and it forced us, it allowed us to, to stay back often longer than others. I mean, we all have friends and family who, you know, months, if not years after everybody else was back out socializing, we're still saying, well, I, I still don't know if I'm going to do real in-person stuff yet. It, it played into the anxieties of many people. Um, I, I can only speak for myself, which is to say that, you know, I did, I'm a very sociable person. I did virtual calls and video calls and Zoom calls and Zoom cocktails with everyone I knew, friends, work friends, writer friends, family you know, you know, Passover seders with, you know, both sides of the family, each one on two computers. Um, You're a uh, good Jew. Not yeah, a I, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> okay, Jews, my memoir, my next memoir. Um, you know, I, I, I did, you know, my book club met once online. And it was like, after three weeks of that stuff, everyone was done. I mean, once in a while, you'd hear from someone, you know, by the middle of April 2020, be like, hey, let's do a virtual cocktail. And everyone would be like, fuck off. Don't bother yeah. me with the shit. Like, I'm done. I'm done with this. Meet me outside. Put on a mask. Let's go for a walk. You know, let's go drink in a park. Um, I, I can't I can't deal with this. I, I and take the point. Yeah. So <laughs> to, to, we, we just did a show. A mess, it's kind of different from your book, a book called Messi versus Ronaldo. <laughs> One right. And an yeah. era that remade the world's game. It suggested that, um, you know, the great, that the history of football, uh, soccer over the last 20 years has been defined whether you like Messi or Ronaldo. Yeah. Um, but we concluded that. Are you, that wait, hold on. What side are you on? I'm definitely, I, I don't like either of them, but certainly more Messi <laughs> than Ronaldo. What about you? Messi, because I lived in Argentina when he first started right. playing. So, so um, but what we concluded was, that this either or reflected perhaps um, the way in which that choice um, is limiting the world of football um, and, and a broader uh, cultural problem. What about this taking the Messi versus Ronaldo metaphor and extending it to analog versus digital? Do you think, David, we need to get beyond it? I mean, 10, 15 years ago, you dealt with it in your excellent book, the Revenge is Analog. Six years uh, ago. Six yeah. years ago. Um, Ten years ago, I was writing about Jewish delis. So. Right. So do we need to get... I mean, obviously, the future's both. Um, I mean, no one is going to live just online, but we're not going to shut down the internet. The internet is an increasingly central part, for better or worse, of our lives. Do we need to get beyond this binary question of analog versus digital? Of course. And I don't think anyone frames things directly in that way. Binary is the language of digital. Digital is, you know, 
a, a, a term that sums up uh, a system, a way of thinking, a way of an architecture, if you will, um, that is binary, on or off, yes or no, one or zero, Apple or Samsung, you know, Netscape or Internet Explorer. Um, and we are often framing the way we speak about things and framing the way we talk about future around that we're that that's the way that digital sort of dictates it i think what we've hopefully learned over the past three years and that we can reflect on and i and what i try to reflect on in the book is is that what we need is a future where our approach to it the way we think about it the way we plan for it is more nuanced um, and it's saying, yes, of course, digital technology is central to our lives. Here we are talking about it, you know, using it right now to have this conversation. Um, it's going to play a role in pretty much everything we do, but uh, it cannot be the be all and end all. And, um, and no one is arguing or few people who aren't planting, you know, explosives and mailboxes are, are arguing for an entirely analog future, you know, blowing up the computer, shutting them down and, and going back to some pre-digital past that hasn't existed in 60 years. Um, so the, the shades of gray, the, the liminal space in between the one and the zero, that's analog, right? When you talk about the difference between an MP3 and a vinyl record, you know, analog is the full signal of the wavelength and all the texture and all the color and all the imperfections that are in that. That is so much more reflective of the world than a bunch of tidy ones and zeros or a, or a simulated um, future, a simulated reality that will appear on a screen. The subtitle of your book is How to Create a More Human World. Some people might respond that we've created a human world and it's catastrophic. We've done a number of shows on uh, many shows, in fact, on the damage that humans have done to the planet, to the world. And there's an increasing fashion these days for books about how we can learn from other species. Ed Yong, for example, has a new book out. He's the New Yorker uh, writer. Uh, he has a new book out, An Immense World, which humans can learn empathy and other supposedly human skills from um, from other species. Do you think that we need to drop this idea of the human world, that we need to perhaps not so much go back to a human world, but try to figure out how to escape ourselves, learn more and interact with other species. I, I think that is, that is a human world, right? Per perhaps we need to be less human-centric in the sense that we only think about our own fate. But even for the sake of our own fate, let's say we are being incredibly selfish, we're at an inflection point in our history in this natural world as biological creatures who are not going to be able to upload their brains to the cloud that in order to survive as a species, uh, the natural world is, is something that our attention demands and we have to put as much, if not all of our efforts into preparing that relationship, whether you know studying it and then correcting the course of, of what we're doing in terms of climate change and various other forms of destructive human behavior. Um, I think one of the things that the pandemic drove home for me and for many people is 
just how much we are creatures of this world, right? Um, we endured something that all the great technology and and inventions uh, that we had put to to into the world and all the development and everything um, didn't stop. In fact, it, it aided and abetted it by the way we've sort of destroyed habitats, put a bunch of species together and, you know, happen to have a couple of them in a seafood market in, a, in one city. Um, uh, but, you know, even when you think back of the high points uh, of those dark days, it was the times when we got out of our houses, got away from the screens and immersed ourselves in that world, going for walks, going for hikes, going for bike rides, going swimming, going surfing in my case. Um, it was in those moments when we actually were able to step back and say, hey, this, this screen here, this is not the world. The world is beyond it. I hear my children screaming downstairs. So now comes the human empathy. Um, uh, and I think we have to, we have to remember that. Uh, and remember that um, we we exist as biological creatures on a planet. That is the ultimate analog truth. Uh, in order to continue doing that, we actually have to become more attuned to that reality and and less attuned to removing ourselves from it. Right? A, a bike ride outside in a city, in the countryside, through nature, through streets, is going to teach you a lot more from an empathetic perspective and an environmental perspective about the world you live in than plugging your Peloton bike in and spinning your legs. Yeah, I, I take your point, but yeah, you're, you're in Canada as a fellow Canadian, you're not an academic, a woman called Karen Baker. I don't know if you know her work. She has a new book out. She's going to be on the show in a week or two. It's called The Sounds of Life, How Digital Technology is Bringing Us Closer to the Worlds of Animals and Plants. It's an intriguing thesis. I mean, how would you respond to someone like Baker who say that technology is actually digital technology is allowing us to escape ourselves? And it's well, I think it's kind of way it's it's allowing us to escape our quote unquote humanity that's done so much damage to the planet. I think it I think in some ways it's wonderful, right? And and that's when that's the best use of digital, where it becomes the tool that allows us to access that wider world. So in my example, you know, I, I got back into surfing on lakes in Canada, which is a stupid conversation we could have another time during the pandemic. One of those dumb, dumb hobbies, right? Bought, bought some really thick wetsuits, you know, got aboard, spent those lockdown days driving out to beaches in the middle of January, you know, freezing temperatures, paddling ice all over my face, catching waves. And I obsessively, obsessively would look day in and day out at websites that would forecast exactly when and where the waves would hit and compare, you know, boys from the, you know, United States Navy on the Great Lakes and the Canadian environmental thing. And, and all of that was be fed through an algorithm through these surf forecasting apps that I, I would just constantly be refreshing on my phone to find the day when that wave would happen. But as soon as I got out there in the water, the technology disappeared. It was me and the waves and the elements. Um, in the same way that you could use Google Maps to get you to the trailhead of a hike. And once you're out there, you don't need your phone except to take photos. Uh, it doesn't serve you to be looking at AR reality while you're walking on that hike. So again, digital is a tremendous tool for human beings to access and maybe even improve in some ways the analog world, right? You think about 
the RNA technology that was used to edit genes and help us, you know, develop these vaccines, but it can't be a replacement. And I think that was the vision of the future that I'm, that really we came up against the one that I'm arguing against, which is that technology, digital technology, computers, software, the internet could play a great role in educating future generations, but it can't be a replacement for school, right? Digital technology can aid, you know, companies and managers and entrepreneurs and inventors and all sorts of businesses, whether they're creating them or whether they're sustaining a business, it can help them be competitive. But AI and big data is no substitute for people with experience, with customer service skills, with, you know, the beauty of a physical store or, or, or a place that connects to a community. Um, you can get any piece of scripture or any sort of mantra or any meditation delivered to your headphones anywhere you want in the world, but nothing will give you a deeper connection to your soul the way that you will attending some sort of religious service or right. And so that's why you're going to Miami, David, right? And that's why I go to Miami, that and the sunshine, because you can't beam the sunshine from a virtual talk. You're a good Jew going to Miami, 20th of November. <laughs> People get their tickets, physical tickets. Don't watch David online. He's much better in person. He's pretty good online, but he's outstanding uh, in person. And that's why the future is analog. His new book, How to Create a More Human World. It's out uh, the middle of uh, November, a couple of days before his appearance. So get the book and get tickets. David, congratulations on the book. Thank I you. I could be with you in Miami. Um, they didn't invite me. I only I'm I'm part of the viral, the digital underclass. I only do online stuff. <laughs> only real stars like you do the physical. So congratulations on that and on the book. What else uh, should we be reading, David? And um, physical books, of course, not on our Kindles. Physical books. I have recently gotten into through friends John Le Carre, which has become Ooh. my my read between things that I have to read for work. Um, and I tend to find a lot of them sitting out in those little free libraries or on the street or at secondhand bookstores. Uh, if you want an immersion into a beautiful analog world um, and an immersion into a literature that doesn't feel like literature uh, and yet is every bit as literary as sort of the serious stuff, you can't do better than Le Carre. And is there any literary character less digital than George Smiley, little fat guy with a wife who runs around more human than anyone, I think, any any literary figure of the 20th century. So uh, excellent choice, David. My pleasure.